This is Good Together, the podcast that inspires you to create change in the world every day. I'm your host, Laura Alexander-Wittig, CEO and founder of Brightly, the number one destination for conscious consumers around the world. At Good Together, we value the planet over perfection and believe that you can make positive things happen for the planet every day by being a conscious consumer and an informed citizen. Listen in as I chat with various experts about living and consuming responsibly. Good Together, our mission is to focus on actions that consumers can take to reduce their impact on the planet. But our guest today, Dr. Peter Kalmus, believes that by focusing on things like recycling, we're collectively missing the point. So I'm a big fan of open conversations and hearing things from all sides. So I actually, before we get into it, I want to read a tweet that I read um, Dr. Kalmus sent out today. Um, So the tweet really sums up, I think, uh, one of the points you're trying to make, which is, so I'll read it. (laughs) You said, I'd love to see some polls, but I suspect that there are far more people out there who think electric vehicles and recycling basically are enough to quote unquote, solve climate change than people who actually get that earth breakdown is a true emergency. So I loved this kind of summary of how you're thinking. Um, So I'm so welcome, so excited to welcome um, Dr. Peter Kalmus today, a NASA climate scientist who is here speaking on his own behalf. So welcome. Hey, Laura, thanks so much for having me. It's it's always a little bit of a cringe moment hearing my tweets read back, <laughs> but but that it's great. You're so active on Twitter. And as a matter of fact, listeners, like <laughs> he is constantly tweeting like the best. I don't know, like they're just snippets, they're your thoughts. They're so fascinating. So I yeah, loved getting funny. in there. <laughs> it's like my subconscious is like directly plugged into Twitter or something. There you go. <laughs> you like wake up tweeting, you go to bed tweeting, all that. Um, but yeah, I wonder if you can kind of just give us a brief intro of, you know, of yourself, how you got involved in climate science, because I know you didn't start out that way. So yeah, just kind of set the stage for us a little bit. Sure. And climate activism is it's a very separate thing from climate science. Yeah, that's <laughs> but, true. Um, yeah. But I, I mean, one of the most important things to know about me is that I can't do climate science without doing activism too. Um, it's, <laughs> it's just uh, the science is too, for me, like it's too important to try to, to, to it's so, it's so kind of scary that we're on the wrong track, in my opinion, um, that I, I have to sound the alarm. I don't really feel like I have a choice. Yeah, so my path has been pretty long. Um, I've I was in love with physics as an undergraduate, and eventually, uh, after a long time and a lot of struggle, I actually made my way to graduate school in physics, um, where I studied astrophysics, and I was really interested in cosmology, cosmology initially, sort of the big questions of the universe, cosmic microwave background, um, you know, Big Bang stuff, and that kind of led me into gravitational wave astrophysics. Um, which was a new field. So the cosmology was already a very mature field at that time. This was 2004 to 2008 at Columbia in New York City. And um, that was a lot of fun. It was super exciting, 
studying gravitational waves, searching for gravitational waves, working on the detectors, calibrating the detectors. But in 2006, my first son was born and um, I started learning about climate change. Um, yeah. It was really a physics colloquium. We had these weekly talks from like visiting professors that would come at, every week to Columbia and tell us about their research. And I would go to those every week. I loved them. And um, one was from a climate scientist and he was talking about uh, the imbalance of energy on the planet. So it's called radiative forcings. Um, there's more energy coming in than going out. So that's why the planet's heating up. And okay. I was on the edge of my seat. So, yeah. um, so eventually over the next few years, um, it took me a while kind of logistically and to get the courage to switch fields. But in 2012, I, I finally got so concerned about climate change that I couldn't focus on gravitational waves anymore. So I switched fields and, and it's been 10 years in climate science. Um, and then over the same, that time, the, the, the same 10 years, I've been kind of figuring out how to communicate the, this, the urgency, the appropriate urgency to the public and to hopefully eventually to, you know, world leaders who just, in my opinion, are not acting um, with, with anywhere near the urgency that they should yeah. be. Yeah, absolutely. And so I had a chance, you had an amazing op-ed go out in The Guardian. Um, we'll link to it in the show notes. But uh, you, there's a paragraph that I'm going to read really briefly. I'll do a little bit of paraphrasing as well, just because it was a bit long for a podcast. However, I, I was totally, <laughs> totally struck down by it, which was, you know, you were, you were basically talking about your background, your journey in this op-ed. And you said, I reduced my own emissions by 90%. And I wrote a book about how this turned out to be satisfying, fun, and connecting. I gave up flying. I started a website to help encourage others. I organized colleagues to pressure the American Geophysical Union to reduce academic flying, which I love that, by the way, side note. Um, I also helped organize Fridays for Future in the U.S. I co-founded a popular climate app, and I started the first ad agency for the Earth. I spoke at, and then this is me paraphrasing a little bit, countless rallies. I wrote endless articles. I gave hundreds of interviews but nothing has worked. It's now the 11th hour and I feel terrified for my kids and terrified for humanity. And that really like, just, I feel like summarized the work you've been doing up until this point. You've, you've really tried to come at it from, you know, a, a message of positivity and like almost like gentle nudging, but it sounds like, and sort of based on current events, which most of us have seen happening in the news, like you really do feel like the time for these sort of gentle nudges has passed. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, thank you for raising that. That was um, that's a really great framing, I think, for this conversation. Um, yeah, I just so I think for me, um, I feel like now, like I've been freaking out for a while and and trying yeah. to trying to get people to act right um, through the through the process of like you know, freaking out and realizing that this is scary, but looking at straight, straight ahead, right, right in the face and acting, you know, not going down into despair, but saying like, all right, we got to be adults here. We got to do this for our kids. We got to act. Um, and, you know, over those years, uh, I think um, there wasn't a lot of support from the scientific community or the media for that framing. Yeah. So maybe like I had to kind of tone things back more than I would have liked to. And then on April 4th, 
I, I think it's a really seismic event that hasn't been fully appreciated by the public yet. But the the International Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, released its sixth, the contribution from its third working group of the sixth assessment report, okay. um, which says that we the the biggest emitting countries of the world have to start drastically reducing their emissions this year, right? Right now. It's not yeah. sometime in the future. Um, we have to have a moratorium on all new fossil fuel infrastructure and look at what the world leaders of the, the of the rich nations of the world are doing right now. They're trying to expand fossil fuels as quickly as possible. They're um, with an, with a report like that coming from the largest sort of group of earth scientists on the planet, all speaking with one voice that we have to ramp down immediately. They are uh, world leaders are squandering an amazing opportunity to sell a transition away from fossil fuels and to uh, renewables to the public. And, and, and this is, you know, simultaneously with, with a war, this horrible war of aggression, completely unprovoked of Putin attacking Ukraine and being completely funded by fossil fuels. Right. So there was this sudden awareness that fossil fuels not only lead to 8 million deaths a year from air pollution, they, they don't not only lead to all of these floods and fires and heat waves and crop losses and famines in the global south that we're starting to live through uh, for real right now, but they're, they're also leading to modern warfare, like the, the biggest yes. driver of modern warfare. So there was this public kind of reckoning of just how terrible fossil fuels actually are. And instead of, you know, using the bully pulpit to sell a transition to renewables, which would make us all more secure and would make our air cleaner and would stop earth breakdown. Um, the world leaders uh, are instead doubling down on fossil fuels. It's it's just an absolutely remarkable moment right now in world history, in my opinion. Absolutely. And the, the thing I'm going to like touch on as well is like, yeah, in addition to the you know, fossil fuel crisis, like literally fueling, um, you know, partial, partially fueling at least this this war, unfortunately, going on in the Ukraine, you would think that consumers, as they're at the gas pumps, would like be really paying more attention, right? Because gas prices have really exploded. It's causing all sorts of downstream impacts, I would say, on our economy. But again, it does still feel like the message is getting lost, right? Yeah. So there could be, I can imagine an alternate message. So the message coming out of the White House right now is we are doing everything we can to keep gas prices low. We're going to drill, baby, drill, right? That's yeah. usually that's a Republican talking point, but right now it's a, a talking point from this current administration. Yeah. I can easily imagine um, a different talking point, which is that, okay, we need to transition as fast as possible away from fossil fuels, obviously. And we can't do that overnight. But we're going to build out renewables as quickly as we can. We're going to have an education program. We're going to have a, you know, a jobs transition program with guaranteed training, uh, guaranteed, uh, you know, equal or greater salaries to people coming out of the fossil fuel industry. We're going to make this happen. In the meantime, we are going to subsidize gasoline and other critical energy for the working class to guarantee that they'll be able to afford it as we make this transition. And we're going to, you know, oversee a transfer. We're going to also deal simultaneously by doing that with this incredible income disparity that has 
ticked up over the last several decades and has accelerated grotesquely during COVID, right? And we're going to yeah. deal with earth breakdown. We're going to, we can do this America. That's the message that should be coming out of this administration right now. And I think it would probably be a pretty easy sell at this point. Um, yeah. Part of what I'm concerned about is that I think a big reason why that hasn't happened is because uh, the people in power right now are so in bed with the fossil fuel industry and so in bed with the ultra rich and are basically the fossil fuel industry and are basically the ultra rich that they don't appear to be willing to give one iota of basically uh, income redistribution to uh, low-income households in the working class. Well, it's it's so interesting to me how you're tying this all back together because it makes total sense to me. I'm also like, when are you running for office, please? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and you're well, like, I don't know. You're like, oh, yeah. do I have to, right? <laughs> I, I want to, Laura, I want to make this really clear that um, for me, a huge wake-up call was, so for many, many years, I was a, an activist with Citizens Climate Lobby. And yeah. They push something that they call carbon fee and dividend, which I think is a terrible name for it. I call it climate income or universal climate income. Okay. And it's not a carbon tax. Um, and part of why I don't like the carbon fee and dividend framing is because everyone assumes you're talking about a carbon tax. Now, in France, a few years ago, they tried an actual carbon tax and um, there were riots in the street. There were the Gilets Jaunes, the Yellow Jacket movement. Um, yeah. they, they, that was touched off because of higher gas prices. Um, and the working class was like, no way are, you know, we going to basically pay for higher, you know, you, you basically need to have the working class on your side as you transition from fossil fuels to renewables. Otherwise, it's not, you know, talk about political feasibility, right? Everyone's always saying, oh, like to deal with climate change, it's, it's not politically feasible. It is politically feasible as long as you take care of low-income households working class, most affected peoples and communities, right? So yeah. if you fail to do that, if it's a transition that further enriches the already rich, it's going to fail. Um, and then the politicians will be like, well, we tried climate action and it failed. No, it didn't fail. It failed because you did it in a really stupid way. So that's why <laughs> I just want to make it, yeah. this is not some like leftist talking point that you need you know, wealth redistribution along with climate action because you want to do both of them. It's just completely practical. You can't, you literally can't get climate action done unless you take care of the working class. We saw that play out in real time in France and other places too that have tried carbon taxes without you. A climate income means basically a carbon tax, but instead of the government keeping the extra money, you give it back to the people. And so yeah. then low-income households come out ahead because there's been research over the last few years, which is, and this was also in the IPCC report, the, the rich use tremendously more fossil fuel than the poor. So they would be putting in a lot more money into that pot, which would then get redistributed to everyone. So low-income households would actually be really happy because even though gas prices were higher, um, they would be making more money at the end of the day. But that's only one way to do it. There's a there's you know infinite policies that you could do to navigate this transition, uh, this energy transition, and to do it in an equitable way. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like I mean that you're right. That's just like one way we could go about it. I'm you know you mentioned again the IPCC uh, report, and I'm curious to know like you know how is it detailing any sort of current plans like does it go into any current plans that are actually going to be making a difference or is it more like just providing recommendations and saying like 
hey, you know, please do this. You know, please listen to us, basically. Yeah, it's more it's more providing recommendations yeah. and sort of timelines and different sort of sort of how global heat will play out on the planet and how impacts will play out on the planet if we emit this much fossil fuel, you know, burn this much fossil fuel, emit this much methane, emit this much carbon dioxide. Here's how this will play out. Here's if we go follow this pathway and, you know, burn less fossil fuels, here's how it's going to play out. So um, it does go into a lot of details about like different sectors, right? And how different sectors can contribute to the problem. So you could, um, you could cobble together a roadmap for, for coming down, but it doesn't, it doesn't come right out and say, for example, you know, by 2025, we should, you know, that commercial aviation industry should be, you know, reduced by 80% and all of the, and the thousands of other statements like that, that you would have to make to come up with a coherent plan, many of which wouldn't really be rocket science, by the way, like if the, in my mind, the key thing is that we have to prioritize this with urgency and that will unlock and we have to do that coherently as a society that's the really hard part because everything's so fractured right now but if we could somehow all agree that earth breakdown and the loss of you know a huge portion of earth's life support systems and potentially the collapse of civilization if we could somehow agree that stopping that was a priority then i think we could enact a lot of these somewhat obvious things for reducing fossil fuels and transitioning really quickly. Yeah. I mean, and it, you're right. It is so fractured right now. I mean, there's like literally, you can't have a conversation with somebody about like a pencil right now. I feel like yeah, it's just, everything is just right. so politicized. It's it's crazy. But I do like how you try to bring it back to the facts um, really as I see it. And I, and I think that we need more of that type of conversation and we need more of, you know, recognition of, um, you know, of, of these really important issues that are coming to play. So I'm curious to know, like, is there anyone out there or maybe like a government or even a local community? Like, are there any sort of success stories that you're seeing coming out of these conversations? Like, is anybody else getting it right? Or is it, are we all completely just bungling it basically? Well, again, to bring it back to the IC- IPCC report. So yeah. global emissions right now are still increasing, but the rate of increase, so that's depressing, but the rate of yeah. increase is is about half of what it was like ten years ago. So that's okay. that's so that's like a top line number. I wouldn't really call that a, a success, but I would call it maybe a glimmer of hope. Um, okay. Another another really hopeful thing in the IPCC report is that the cost of solar panels, um, wind turbines, and uh, battery storage. All three of those costs have just plummeted over the That's last awesome. approximately 10 years. I mean, yeah, we're talking just massive drops. Um, I can't remember the numbers. It's like, you know, 100% drops, but I just can't remember the time frame, basically. Um, and and those, those reductions in costs for all three of those technologies that, you know, kind of critically work together to, those are the three key technologies you really need, right, to power the transition away from fossil fuels. Um, so the fact that there, those costs have fallen and are falling much faster than, they've consistently outpaced projections on how fast the costs would fall. So that's a highlight. Um, there are a few nations that are um, apparently uh, actually have peaked their own national emissions and are falling. Um, I can't remember all the details on that, but that's a success story. So I point people to the recent Working Group 3 report for more on that. 
And then one other thing I really liked about this report, you know, aside from uh, uh, kind of highlighting the the much greater contribution of the global countries in the global north, so the rich nations and the rich people within those nations have had an outsized impact on emissions, right? So that's, in my opinion, that's a lot of low-hanging fruit right there that we could take care of fairly quickly. You know, all the luxury yachts, for example, all the, the private jets, yep. et cetera, right? So cut that out. Like that should even, shouldn't even be something we have to think hard about at all. Um, and then it also kind of highlights a concept that I've been pushing for many, many years, but I think it's fallen largely on deaf ears, which is something called a demand reduction, which is, you know, of course, related to reducing demand, especially from the ultra rich. So if we used less energy overall as a society, uh, we would get to, you know, 0% fossil fuels much, much more quickly because we'd have to build far less renewables to take their place. Absolutely. Well, I mean, just hearing those, you know, those glimmers of hope, I think is is a good thing for us to hear. But I mean, as we know, like we are definitely at a state of emergency in your opinion. And I, I would be remiss if I didn't bring up, you know, you're, you're very buzzy right now um, in the media and amongst, you know, anyone who seems to turn on the news because you did just recently engage in an act of civil disobedience yeah. where you literally just chained yourself to an entrance of the JP Morgan Chase building. And like, so why did you do that? I'm sure people have asked you this ad nauseum, but I'm curious, like, what made you say, this is the way I'm going to get out in front of it? I get, you know, a- after hearing our conversation and understanding really your your key your key points you want to get across, I get why you wanted to make a stance. I'm curious about, like, why you made this particular stance. So it was an experiment. Uh, that's the that's the short answer. Hey, it was a good one. <laughs> yeah, it was. So like, you know, you you read that paragraph from the op-ed, uh, which basically is kind of a list of many, many other experiments that I tried, yeah. which were which were a risk in the sense that they took a lot of my time. And I was speaking out as a scientist, which a few years ago, that was like, uh, there was kind of a taboo against scientists speaking out. I think that okay you know, as scientists like me and and others have spoken out more, that taboo has gotten weaker, but this was a whole nother level of risk. Right. And, um, I just, there's a long tradition of civil disobedience, nonviolent civil disobedience in social justice movements, right. From the, you know, the suffragettes to, uh, civil rights movement to, um, you know, the, the movement for, Indian equality in uh, with Gandhi, um, so there's it it works, um, and this was an opportunity to try that with the climate justice movement, and um, you know I thought that the scientist rebellion uh, idea of tying a global sort of a, a series of actions like this happening all around the world and tying that to the IPCC working group three report. Which again, like like I was I was very impressed by the level of I guess you could say um, uh, urgency in that scientific report, right? So every report that gets released from the IPCC over the last like fifteen years has gotten increasingly urgent, and finally, I think this is a report that clearly says we got to do this right now, which is that that to yeah. me is the right level of urgency. You know, it's just kind of like it's a lot that um, that sort of statement above all of this kind of noise of carbon budgets and two degrees Celsius and net zero by 2050, which I, which I've always thought has been an incredibly weak framing, incredibly dangerous framing. Right. So, so it it took a very clear stance that 
this is where we're at is already dangerous and things are going to get far more dangerous and we got to start ramping down right now. So for all I those just, reasons, <laughs> yeah. That's so good. No, I was just going to say, I literally just picture you reading the report and like putting down me like, dang, they went there, right? Like they're, they're really stepping up They're They're getting angry, right? Laura. Yeah. And, and it's, yeah. it's remarkable. Uh, some of the quotes that the UN secretary general, Antonio Guterres has been saying have just been blistering. So yeah. um, that same op-ed, uh, I started that op-ed with one of his quotes, which was um, uh, sometimes climate activists are depicted as dangerous radicals. Uh, the, the truly dangerous radicals are the government or world governments that are expanding fossil fuels. I might've gotten a few words wrong. He also said that, um, ex- you know, expanding fossil fuels is, um, economic and moral madness was the the word he used. So uh, it makes no economic sense anymore. And it's, uh, I've used the word neocide, which is, I think that's like basically genocide directed to young people and future generations. And I think that's exactly what's happening right now. If you consider that the fossil fuel industry has been systematically lying uh, and spreading disinformation to the public for decades, like they, they came together in the early nineties and they sat down in their smoke filled room. And they, they kind of hashed out a plan for how with, with PR people of how to misinform the public in the most efficient way possible and how to prevent climate action. Like they literally did that. And this is all well-documented. Um, you know, it's instead of a smoke filled room, I think it was some conference that they had, you know, but they, 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 they colluded to come up with this plan to stop, climate action and to, to literally lie. So if that's not a form of genocide, and it's obviously directed mainly to young people and to future generations, I don't know what is. So anyway, the, the, this, that's a long answer to something that I could say very, you know, succinctly, which is that I was feeling desperate. Um, I was thinking about my beautiful, my two beautiful sons. And I was thinking about how I had in my mind for several years this idea of trying civil disobedience and taking this risk and that I was scared to do it, right? And um, I was scared of getting fired from my job. I was scared of what the police would do. I was scared of going to jail. And so I was finally just like, I'm doing it. And I committed to it. And that moment of committing to it felt amazing. Um, And then doing it, I just had this sense of calm and the sense of um, being aligned you know i don't know how else to say it and and the sense of solidarity with the other activists of the world that have been doing similar acts and and much more courageous acts than what i did and and risking much more and in some cases especially indigenous people in the global south have been being murdered for taking a stand for the earth and for protecting their land and for protecting their water and for protecting their culture um so they've been on the front lines for far far longer they've been taking far greater risks what I did was something very simple and and fairly low risk, even though it felt scary to me. Yeah. And uh, you know the the result of the experiment, the hypothesis was that this could communicate very directly to people, kind of brain to brain, the actual urgency that earth scientists are feeling right now. That was yeah. a hypothesis. And the result of the experiment was that, yes, that is, in fact, what happened. It was, you know, I I think it inspired people. It gave people hope around the world uh, far more than I expected that it would. Um, I know that 
you know, a lot of scientists around the world feel similarly. Um, I think there's this this awakening that, you know, civil disobedience for climate has been an underutilized tactic. And we're hoping for just a massive upsurge. Um, and not just from scientists, you know, we think historians and artists and doctors and lawyers and podcasters should all have their own, you know, climate disobedience movement. Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing that I find so interesting about this was like, and one of the reasons why I read that paragraph at the top of the show was like, you, this was not your step number one, right? Like you were not going into this with ego. Like you were not like, Hey, I'm going to be the guy that chains himself to JP Morgan Chase and like get all this press. Like you literally have done the most, I mean, like literally making an app, doing all of these different side projects on your own time, not even, you know, full time to try and raise awareness. But you realized, you know what, like, this is just, it's not happening fast enough. So I, I really need to go and, and do that. And so that's really one thing that struck me. Um, I'd be curious to know, like, how you have your phone has probably been ringing off the hook, as it were, like, it, it sounds to me like the mainstream media and everything is actually taking notice. Would you agree with that? I think that they're starting to. Yeah, it's been okay. it's been a slow burn. So yeah. um yeah, if it's 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 getting out there now. Yeah, I think it is. It's not it's still not. You know, I I um thank you for saying that. It's been it's been a really hard journey to try to build a platform for the sake of getting the message out because yeah. you know, it can look like I'm just trying to get followers and I'd really rather not do any of this, but I just felt like I couldn't sit idly by while, you know, society just kind of kept heading in this really dangerous direction. So I've had a lot of, you know, there's been kind of that tension between needing to build a platform and, but, but also kind of realizing and really centering myself to be a spokesperson for the earth and realizing that this is bigger than me, you know, um, way, way bigger than me. I, we're talking yeah. like millions of years, timescales bigger than me, right? My little, I'm like a little fruit fly that's just trying to <laughs> to put a message out that I just, for, for whatever reason, I feel really connected to the, the sort of suffering that the planet's going through right now. Um, but, you know, that said, if you, if you like do a, you know, Google trend search for like, um, you know, scientist rebellion or, or mm -hmm. something like that. And then you put it next to like the Kardashians or something like that. It's, it's pretty remarkable how far we have to go to making yeah. climate uh, action and sort of kind of policies and, and holding world leaders to account. Right. So there, there has to be a general awakening of the public that world leaders and the fossil fuel industry have taking us to the brink of disaster and they're doubling down and they're taking us in the wrong direction. Um, so that's a job of the, the media has to come, you know, to, to rally around that. The entertainment industry has to rally around that. Um, we, we started this project um, called the good energy project. So Anna Jane Joyner was the director of that. Um, I contributed to it a little bit to try to help make it easier uh, to do climate storytelling, but the whole culture basically has to rally and step up and basically say enough is enough to this expansion of fossil fuels. And it's going to be tough because it's going to mean doing a lot of things in a different way than what we're used to.
So would you say from an individual's perspective, that's the most effective thing that we can do, which is reduce our reliance on fossil fuels collectively, make sure that um, we're not electing officials who are, you know, kind of in the pockets of that industry? Is that kind of like if you had to give our listeners like one thing to to really focus on, is that would that be it? Yes, I would say that we so there's two ways of thinking about it. You can think of cultural shift. Like yeah. we have to change social norms uh, and revoke the the license, the social license of fossil fuel and make it like really uncool to burn fossil fuel and hold elected leaders to account in a major way that we haven't been doing. Another way to say that same thing is we need to build a really strong grassroots climate justice movement. Um, so, and it's, it's, I think it's hard for people to know what that means to them in their life, yes. right? how to, how to get involved. So it is much easier to talk about flying less and, um, you know, switching to a plant-based diet and zero waste, which by the way, um, there was an article in the LA times about zero waste today. And it always makes my skin crawl that they exclude, um, carbon dioxide waste from burning fossil fuels, which is yeah. the thing that's really taking us to the brink of disaster. I mean, municipal waste is bad. Plastic in the oceans is bad. But it's really global heating. I think that's going that that's what's causing the droughts. That's what's causing the, you know, wildfires. That's what's causing the food shortages. So that's the to me like the super urgent thing. Um, uh, but yeah, I think a lot of people it's the the magnitude of the problem is getting through to some people. They tend to there's a there's a danger of becoming overwhelmed by it, right? Obviously, a lot of us feel yes. overwhelmed. Yes. I think that comes from uh, feeling alone with this terrifying knowledge, and so the antidote to that really is joining with other people who feel the same way, which means which actually means seeking out climate activists that live close to you and joining together with them and getting to know them and doing the hard work of building trust and relationships, even if you might disagree with them about some of the finer points, but it's, if you can do that, I find it to be an incredibly joyful thing. And um, climate activists, in, in my opinion, are some of the most clear eyed people on the planet. Some of the most courageous people on the planet, some of the most trustworthy people on the planet. They're, they're just, they're, they are nature defending itself and they're taking a stand and it's a, they're on the right side of history and it's, it's really a beautiful thing to be a part of. So um, that would be my one, if, if I had to boil down my advice to one thing, it would be to just find a way to join up with other climate activists or maybe, you know, people who are thinking about becoming climate activists and have those discussions, um, figure out how you want to take your energy and your time and your resources and your particular skills and interests and, and bring them into the movement and then be willing to take some risks, right? So even making that big shift in your life to spending time and energy and getting to know these strange people known as climate activists, that's a, that's a risk in and of itself, right? <laughs> yeah, and, and I mean, I, I would love for us to think about all of the different, like, I don't know, flavors of climate activism as well. Like, obviously, there are going to be some people who are out um, you know, protesting or doing things in person or, you know, really focusing on one, I guess, one issue in the collective term of climate activism, but really similar to the way we talk about, like, um, you know, 
thinking or living with your values here on this podcast, like there are going to be different nuances and different parts of the conversation that you feel like you can get yourself involved in, right? Like you don't necessarily have to go out and be like, I need to, you know, label myself as this. Like you can literally go and be a part of the conversation and go be a part of the movement by listening, participating, um, you know, shining a light on conversations that are happening. Right. So that's what I also, what I think is so interesting. Right. I think, you know, if there were 1 billion climate activists, there would be 1 billion different ways to do climate activists, uh, climate activism. I really believe that. I think there's probably two, two, um, commonalities that all effective climate activists have in common. So one of those is that they join together with other climate activists. And then the second one would be they take risks. And yeah. and that's it. Other than those two things, I think um, there's a you know huge diversity and a huge variety of outlooks and tactics and perspectives. And and that's part of what makes it really fun. Um it's a it's um, you know, this is a social problem. It's a problem of society. Uh, it's it's not we know how to ramp down. Uh, we used to live without fossil fuels, right? Just a few hundred years yes. ago. And we were mostly fine. Um, and there, and now we have all these amazing technologies that would allow us to keep almost everything we like about society right now um, without fossil fuels. And then maybe in that process, we could think pretty carefully about fixing some of the parts of society that we don't like. But the point is, it's not a problem in physics. Nothing in physics says that we have to make this planet get super hot and cause society to collapse and cause the sixth mass extinction. There's nothing physically forcing humanity to do that. It's all just a question of social will of this like giant flock of 800 humans and what direction it moves in. Right. So it's a deeply social problem. It's the the social aspect that's holding us back. The sociologists might be more important now than the climate scientists. And anyway, what that means as a climate activist is you have to you have to be very social and you have to build these relationships. There's there's really there's not it's there's probably there are probably some effective things you could do. But um, in my experience as a climate activist, I haven't found anything that's that's effective that doesn't involve, you know, face to face conversations and building trust and creating community. Yeah, I mean, so we're we're about at time. I feel like you and I could talk about one of these pieces forever. I say this to all of my guests. I'm like, we we time box it just because I know our listeners are super busy, but would yeah. love to get into some of the nitty gritty with you again at some point. Yeah. Um, I know you're you're super busy, but listeners definitely check out Dr. Peter Kalmuth. He has got an amazing, like I told you, I'm a big Twitter person. So he's big <laughs> on Twitter at climate human. Um, but we'll also include links to his various, um, you know, uh, you know, various initiatives, including scientist rebellion, which we didn't get a chance to talk about. But I just wanted to thank you so much for taking time out of your, your busy schedule as a both as a NASA climate scientist, but also as a climate activist. So thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Laura. That was really fun. Let's do it again sometime. joining us on another episode of Good Together. 
To get show notes and more, head to brightly.eco slash podcast. And as a special thank you to our listeners, use code GOODTOGETHER to get 10% off all products in Brightly's brand new shop full of planet positive swaps for your home. Finally, don't forget to join in on the conversation with us on social, where I know you can find us at brightly.eco. Don't forget, we're all on this journey together, so have fun putting the planet first and stay curious.